So guys, what's a line so good you wish you wrote it? It can be from a movie, a book, whatever. For me, uh, you know, anybody who who follows me on any kind of social media, um, I always plug it at the end of the show, or Kyle plugs it at the end of the show, follows me on social media, anything like that, I always have the letters N-K-O-A-S. Um, and their origin, that whole thing, is just my love of this one particular sentence that I, I f- discovered in high school and, and was amazed by. Um, as a as a teenager, I was obsessed with Jack Kerouac's On the Road, as you tend to be if you're uh, one of those kind of uh, uh, you know intellectual burnouts of, of high school. Uh, you know the the honors class kids who don't show up for some reason and think it's rebellious. Um, I, so I loved On the Road, and the thing is, everybody talks about that one quote. You know, the the only one for me are the mad ones, mad to talk, mad to live. That the whole that whole monologue uh and and that's a fine statement but what struck me in the book and amazed me that nobody ever talked about was this phrase that Kerouac comes up with when sal paradise is describing dean moriarty walking down the sidewalk and he describes him as a new kind of american saint and just that phrase a new kind of american saint um, I mean, I love the the beat poets and Allen Ginsberg and, and Neil Cassidy and and Burroughs and the way that they could create these phrases that had so many different meanings and avenues. But just that phrase, a new kind of American saint conjures so many different potential meanings. And I think that if you say that phrase to anybody, you know, when I say the phrase, a new kind of American saint, I guarantee one particular image comes to mind for me, a completely different image comes to mind for Kyle, a completely different image comes to mind for Tom. They're all different, and I just think it's such an expressive idea, this this beautiful description, and I don't think anybody will ever be described better. So that line is, is so good, so rich. I, I, I love it, and that's where all of that NKOAS comes from. Well, this isn't going to be a surprise for me either. And uh, we're both coming at uh, the movie podcast and answering a question with uh, books. Anyone who knows me is not going to be surprised with this, especially if you've met me in person uh, and you know the uh, big old tattoo I have on my left forearm. And I don't think there is any better opening line or even just more simple, elemental, just imagination exploding line than the opening to the dark tower the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed it's simple it's poetry it tells you pretty much everything you need to know about a story that's going to get really wild and all over the place and just tells you right from the jump very simply this is a chase. This is a classic old adventure. The details may differ, but we've been telling the story forever. King is one of our best American writers of all time. Modern, definitely. All time. I mean, he's just one of the great pulp, mainstream, artful, mixed bag storyteller. And I don't think he's ever put together as powerful a sentence as that. And I mean, I don't know if I if it's really a spoiler or anything, but it's so powerful he circles back to end the book 
the book series with that same line. Simplicity at its finest. I mean, I feel like if Hemingway was alive when that book came out and saw that line, he'd be like, fuck yeah, Steve gets it. You take it from here, slugger. What, is there some more famous quote you were expecting? We're talking 1954's On the Waterfront here on You're Missing Out with special guest Jay Kim. Our guest today is an actor and filmmaker based in Los Angeles. You might know him as Ian in Alexis, Adult Min in After Yang, Mark Jong in The Green Couch, Chris in Ballad of the Late Night Blues, uh... My favorite, Street Race Party Kid in F9, the new Fast and Furious film, Security AI in Purple Eyes, Alan Akahoshi in Murdered by Morning, Jefferson in Symbiosis, You Look Great, Bossman in You Look Great, Brian in Mountain Men, Dr. Lindstrom in Sophia, Shin in Prophet, Mobster in 3000, uh, and my favorites, uh, Dude at Bar in Kate, Chem Student in Us and Them, and his first acting role, concert goer in the short <laughs> film that was also directed by today's guest jay kim jay kim oh my god <laughs> i told you i was going to read your whole imdb and you i did you weren't kidding you weren't kidding wow <laughs> well thank you thank you mike for uh having me on and listing all my prestigious roles um coming, in my coming career. here straight from straight from la uh mm-hmm. via via the interwebs uh, I should give some folks a little bit of context, uh, partly why I read that. Uh, Tom and I went to college with Jay. Uh, we were all film students together. Uh, the film I invoked at the, uh, at the end of that list, Shadow Play, is a film uh, that I worked on with Jay, uh, that I wrote the music for, and that we edited together. We were um, very close collaborators on that film, and yet somehow he still wants to talk to me, which is uh, impressive. <laughs> Uh, Tom, Tom was, uh, Tom worked on the film as well. We mostly, we, we tended to work together as like a little collective, if just because nobody else, uh, wanted to deal with some of us. Um, it was because we were assholes and didn't want to work with anyone else. There you go. Thank you, Tom. (laughs) No, but like, and, 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 uh, I had a magazine on campus and, and Jay, uh, was, would always come hang out there and, and work on that. And Mm -hmm. it was, it was great. And, and we liked a lot of the same films. Uh, So we were, we were fairly, relatively close back in college, you know, but relatively relatively close. Yeah. (laughs) I like that you're emphasizing relatively. Um, (laughs) I, I, like you can't come on the show and then also distance yourself from me because being on the show as an act is already damning you. You know, it's you. You were a behind-the-scenes guy. You know, you were you were. I would say primarily a director when it came to what you were doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you, you were uh, the reason your first credit is concert goer is simply because uh, we were doing a concert scene because we decided to do a rock musical um, when our teachers told us don't do anything with music. Um, and we needed to fill a club, so everybody just stood in there at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then... We just did a massive close-up, and there's just, like, four guys (laughs) in the front of the stage. We didn't never, we never cut to the audience, and, yeah. Very tight crowd shots. That was it. Very, very tight. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You can see Tom in that, though. Eagle-eyed viewers, uh, can see Tom, uh, if they look. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll post the link to the film on social. Maybe. Uh, yeah, you, you you might have a hard time recognizing me. <laughs> Lots changed since then. 
<laughs> Not kidding. I'm, I, it looks like I lost ha- I, I lost half of myself. Oh really? But the wow. yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Uh, the credit that I that that I love the most is uh, is Dude at Bar in Kate. That was my senior thesis film. My attempt mm-hmm. at making a comedy, uh, which I don't know if people have realized, I'm not a funny person, but I tried. <laughs> no, I'm not at all. And I think what had happened, if I remember correctly, is that it was supposed to be a scene that took place between our lead actor and this this uh, actress character that had played his friend, but like a week before we were supposed to shoot. She was like, I actually got a job in Vermont shooting a feature, so I'm out of here. And I needed to write a scene within, you know, within a day to -hmm. replace it because we'd already booked the location and everything. Mm -hmm. And Jay and I, um, to fulfill a requirement in college, took an acting class together at school. So I knew, I knew what nobody else knew in the department or a few people knew, which is that Jay Kim can act. Um, because I think up until that point, you had just been like, you know, standing in the background of various short films. Uh, yes. if I remember correctly, yeah, you were, you, in fact, in one, you're staring directly into the lens. Which is yes, I was. <laughs> With a face that conveys, please let me leave. <laughs> <laughs> looks like a hostage crisis. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, great shoot. Yeah. I heard it went well. Um, so I asked you to do this scene, uh, mm-hmm. and you came in. And fucking knocked it out of the park, oh. and it was. Uh, I'm serious. The first take, we we had to break because the people behind the camera were laughing. Um, it was great. I, I think they were laughing because they just never thought that I could be capable of being a douchebag. Essentially, because I think literally you asked me, "Hey, you want to you want to play a douchebag in my film?" Yep. I was like, "Yep, yep, I'll do Especially it." Especially because. Because like I was always so I'm, I'm still you know I you know I, I try to consider myself a nice guy and I was always so passive and just like you know no. um, very just kind of quiet and then all of a sudden out of nowhere I just start being this douchebag on the screen so I think people were just like whoa J Kim is that you <laughs> it was so good it was you acting opposite a good friend of ours a guy I miss very much who's also out in your neck of the woods now Mike Derrick who mm-hmm. was uh, pretty much acted in any <laughs> film I made uh, after we found him because he was just great and you guys were fantastic and. Lo and behold, I find out that you have made the move out to the West Coast, and now you are a bona fide actor. You are a... Don't be demure about this street race party kid in fucking Fast and the Furious 9. To be fair, I was supposed, I was, that was, I was an extra in that movie, and I was just, by luck, like, if you, look, if you want to be on camera, you gotta be in front of you got to be in front of that that director and just got to make him just knowing that you're right there. So I was at the right place at the right time. He's like, "Hey, kid, you you want to you want a line?" I was like, "Yeah, hell yeah, I want a line." And then then rest is history, I guess. So. They saw your undeniable uh, star power, and they were like, <laughs> oh "Fuck it, this kid can't be in the background. That is my street race party kid." Well, to be fair, I, I, I was the only Asian in that crowd, so it's kind of a tasty minority. So there you go. <laughs> now I have to ask. Uh, mm-hmm. since we are addressing this, that you are Street Race Party Kid in Fast and the Furious 9, uh, or F9 as the proper title is. Now, I, and, and listen, listen, please, I don't want to get you in trouble. If you are under embargo, or you are under NDA, we don't want to fuck this up for you, but can I ask, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm not even going to ask for the whole line, because I don't want to get you in trouble. Can you tell us a word that you say in your line as Street Race Party Kid? Just one word, or will that be too much? Or will you get in trouble? Is that a spoiler? 
Screw it. I'm just going to say the line. I'm going to say the line. I'm going to say the line. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, my oh. God. Oh. <laughs> Are you guys ready for this? Are you guys ready for this? <laughs> I, I, don't blink. Don't blink. Don't blink. Okay. Um, I say in the film, um, hope, I think somewhere in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, race about to start. I walk up. All I say is, place your bets. There you go. That's what I said. Fuck, man. You're the money man. You got this shit. (laughs) You're crucial. And knowing how these films go, I mean, look, they brought back the dude from Tokyo Drift after like seven weeks. You, when they, when they're making Fast and the Furious 35, like you could come back and it turns out you're running an entire racketeering thing out there. That's. (laughs) My friend did text me. He's like, they better make a Fast and 35 and you better be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you better come back as yeah some kind of yakuza boss that owns everything. I don't. But anyways, yeah. Come yeah. on, was, you know. Listen, it's uh, you know, they Han comes from a student film. It's all possible. Anything's possible. Yeah, yeah. Never say never in this industry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. <laughs> But, uh, so I reached out to you, uh, because we're, uh, you know, we're terrible at keeping in touch, but we try when we can. Uh, you know, uh, we, we do our best. Whenever you watch an obscure movie or, you know, we want to be reminded how, how old we are. We just, yeah. We try to stay in touch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I asked you if you wanted to come on the show, mm-hmm. uh, which you were kind enough to say you would. And I sent you the list of films we had available for season one. Uh, and right away you went on the waterfront. Yeah. Uh, it, it just, to me, it just stuck out. I wouldn't say it's something that I hold near and dear to my heart, but, uh, it's definitely a film that I, I've learned so much from over the years, I think. Um, I think particularly because my dad loved that movie. And I think, I, I'll be honest with you, the first time I watched it, I think I was, I think I was nine or ten years old, and I, I I fell asleep actually watching it actually. But I watched it with my dad, and all I remember is, and I, I was waking up from my nap, and my dad was glued to the screen, and all he said, all he said, all he said to the screen was, "Now that's a man right there," and while looking at Marlon Brando, and I was like, "Wow!" So I think that's why, like, whatever affects my parents, whatever whatever I see, the reaction I get, I see from my parents when, when they watch a movie, I think that's what makes me think, well, this is probably a good film. So, yeah, I mean, I revisited it many times after, and, um, yeah, I, it, it's it's definitely a film that I come to. Uh, it's aged well for me, and I've come to, uh, I think, appreciate it. Well, especially because, if I may talk about at least the you that I knew back in the day, I mean, you were, mm-hmm. as a filmmaker, a very uh, sort of naturalist filmmaker. You know, the, the, the films that you made back in college were very kind of, but very often grounded stories about people struggling, you know, that was the kind of stories that at least you seemed attracted to back then. You were not, um, necessarily doing, uh, you know, absurdist Fellini films or, or <laughs> anything quite like that. You know, you had a, a fantastic, uh, thesis about a, a, um, uh, a priest with a, with an ideological struggle. Um, I, the, the title escapes me right now, but I will remember. At some Sins point. of the Father. Come on, man. Sins, Sins of, the, of father. the Father. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, I, I, before we recorded, I brought up a movie you forgot you made. So fuck you. Okay? That, is, that is true. That is true. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. But so that was, so, so I, I, cause I did not actually know. We, we never talked about it. I did not know you were, 
you know, we're, we're, we're such an actor now, you know? So when you said on the waterfront, I, my brain went like, of course, I'm, I'm sure that like, you know, Ilya Kazan was probably like a big filmmaker for him. And now I realize you're also approaching it from the angle of looking at it from the performer's standpoint. And this is certainly a performance driven film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, if you're going to study acting, you better study Marlon Brando for sure. And uh, yeah, Ilya Kazan was definitely one of, I think I've recently, as I've transitioned more into acting, I've actually went back and watched more of Ilya Kazan's work. Uh, one of my favorite ones is definitely uh, East of Eden, um, uh, which I didn't want to do on one of these podcasts, but that's for another time. <laughs> but, uh, that'll um, be, I think, season 20-something, so, you know. Give me a call. Give me a call, Mike. That'll be a, a well, <laughs> you'll be too busy filming Fast and the Furious 35 when that happens. <laughs> I will make it a priority. But, uh, but yeah, uh, Eli Kazan is definitely one of those filmmakers that I, I admire one of the most because of how he directs his actors. I mean, he's an actor himself. He came from an, uh, you know, um, an actor's world. So, yeah. So, I mean, going back to On the Waterfront, I mean, you really, I don't know, like, you really can't get that kind of performance, I think, without Eli Kazan. But that, to give more credit to Marlon Brando himself, he just defined a whole new genre of acting like he was just I, I would say his the only word to describe him right there is just effortless effortless and um i mean he's yeah marlon brando someone I've, I've, I've always looked up to and just how naturalistic he is and i always try to you know i, I think when i was making movies too you know uh, one thing for me was uh, i always try to look back on not just actors who are great but just people in general, and I think that's what Marlon Brando was so good at was just being a uh, just a, this observer of just people's human behavior, human behavior, which uh, really just um, transcended his character into just someone that not a character anymore. Just you just saw Terry Malloy on screen, you know, as his, you know, and he wasn't nobody else. So, um, well, it's it's funny too because I mean, he's a you know, he's a striking looking guy. He's a good looking dude, but like, he's like, he's, it's not so much that he's dirtying himself up or putting on a beard or whatever, but like, he's playing a guy in such a way that you don't, he, he just feels like one of the guys. Like, you, in, in this cast with so many of these dock workers, these long, all these guys that look just like they grabbed them off the docks and threw them in as extras, he doesn't not fit in. Like, you could, you could, you could imagine a guy like this who was like, Right, he's a good-looking dude, but he's kind of a screw-up, so he's working with the guys. But he's not out of the ordinary attractive. Just at the way he carries himself, his eyes, mm-hmm. and the way he talks, you just go, right, I mean, yeah, I guess if you squint, he's good-looking, which isn't what many actors were doing at the time, All right. letting themselves be unappealing. I have to interject here because we have, uh, because it's J. Kim, our entire format has already gone out the window. We are talking just like... <laughs> As though it was 10 p.m. in the Hillwood Common building uh, while they're trying to clean up and they're kicking us out. We blew right past the format. Uh, So let's get right into it. I am going to read why the registry selected on the waterfront. Director Ilya Kazan took Bud Schulberg's hard-hitting script and crafted it into a commentary on loyalty and justice in an almost documentary-like depiction of the lives of New York City dock workers and the union thugs who control them. Supreme acting by Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger is most often of the direct in-your-face variety, though offset by more nuanced scenes with Eva St. Marie and Carl Malden. 
Known primarily at the time as a conductor for the New York Philharmonic, Leonard Bernstein earned his only Academy Award nomination for one of his first film scores, a composition that accents the film's fever pitch and enfolds its tender moments. Now, even that statement, while focusing on the performances, does remind you of just the to- the total package that this picture is. Oh, yeah. There's there's so much craft from so many different angles on it. Because it's easy to think of a, of a 1954 movie, even like going and knowing, oh, Brando kind of redefined what acting could be. He changed the game. You, you kind of still think, oh, it's 54. It might still feel like an older movie, like maybe stagey or like filmed on sound stages have that look. But then you watch the movie and it really is very much like a naturalistic movie, like almost like it was filmed in the seventies, but shot in black and white as a choice. I mean, like, like there's moments where it just feels like they're like, Oh, maybe they stole this shot on, on, on a street corner. And you're just like, these guys are just working at the docks or something. It's just got this timeless filmmaking quality to it that you just never, you never get like, you never think about, I don't know. You just get lost in it. It's easy to just like, there's never a false moment in it. It's funny you say that Tom, cause my notes actually said it was going in the opposite direction. I said for me watching this, uh, I kept thinking, Oh, this is a, a late forties, uh, Vittorio De Sica, you know, Italian neorealist film that somebody just dubbed in English. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's, that's essentially the same. We're basically but saying that's, the that's same That's what I'm thing. saying. It's when you talk about that timeless quality, it's the fact that you, you simultaneously think this was, you know, an Italian neorealist film and also a 70s American new wave film, but it, it lands right in 1954, well, because, as you said. Because also, like, the, it, it never, like, really latches itself into a specific time. Like, I think the only reference to anything that locks it into a specific time frame is they mention the polo grounds, which is like, okay, well, the New York Giants leave in, like, the late 50s, early 60s, so I guess it's sometime before then, but it could be when Vittorio De Sica was making his Italian aerialist movies, or they just filmed it in the 70s, shot it in black and white, and they're like, all right, well, here's a movie about Longshoremen, whatever. Um, you, ne- you never get, like, st- stuck in something, and there's never a moment where, like, old kinds of filmmaking comes in and, like, jank- yanks yeah. you out of it. You're just locked in from the moment, and you just, wow, man, this movie just, it's just... It's just because there's no plot. Like there's no. It's not like movies back then where there's like, oh, there's a story and there's a dame and there's this, there's this heist or whatever, and there's a shootout. Or it's just like, no, it's just the sad boxer just having to decide if he wants to be a stool pigeon or not, and just like two hours of him just thinking. Yeah, and I, I, I it's a character driven thing, and that's why you know I, I, I guess it kind of when Jay, when you picked this, it made sense to me. Not just, I mean the fact that you're an actor i keep going back to college but i you know even back when we were in college like there were so many times where i would show you a script or something i was working on that we were working on and and you would ask mm-hmm. me like yeah but why are they doing that and uh mm-hmm. i handled that with my usual uh grace and aplomb probably going i don't fucking know because i wrote it you know but that was something that always kind of that you were right. always looking for when you're talking about like, why somebody what was the angle on it and what was why what was the arc that they were following and i think that with this film i mean that's all it is 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 character arcs right Right. Um, no, I, I completely agree, actually. Um, but just to uh, add to that, uh, one of my I, uh, an acting class I took, I think, uh, Stella Adler, actually. Uh, yeah, I took some acting classes with Stella Adler, and I met this wonderful teacher. Uh, his name is John Forks. Um, 
he was a huge, huge, huge fan of, of Brando. And uh, one of his favorite quotes, well, this is a quote that he made up, John Corks, he made up was, uh, human behavior has no rules, you know? And I think uh, he applied that to Brando's method is because whatever Brando did or his character did within in the film, I could guarantee you probably most of it wasn't scripted. Uh, it wasn't in the script at all. It was probably mostly improv by Brando. And there was that famous scene between uh, 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 Brando and Eva Marie Saint uh, in that park um, yep. where uh, she drops a glove. Eli Kazam's look that kept, kept rolling on him. He, instead of just stopping that scene, uh, uh, Brando just picks it up and he doesn't give it back to her. He, he wears the glove and that was never scripted, you know, and he just falls into that character and like, no one told him to do that. And nobody, and why did you, you could analyze that the action to people say, oh, it's a sexual thing. It could be, yeah, it could be, or it could, or it could just be he's nervous or he, or it could just be, he's just playing around with the glove. It's just all about just being, there's no rules to it again. It's just like just being human essentially. And that thing, that's what Brando was just good at. I think he was just good at being human in front of the camera. And what's so great about, Jay, you mentioned the glove improv, is it's, it didn't just give Brando's character something to do. It didn't just give Terry something to do. Um, because the thing about that scene and kind of the struggle, you know, I, I, I often bemoan a lot of movies I call tough guy movies, you know, these these films that, that learn the wrong lessons from movies like On the Waterfront. Uh, and they always just kind of have this female character who's in love with the tough guy and I don't know, she's just there because he's a tough guy and she's a dame. And what's great is that we're supposed to buy that Eva Marie Saint is a Catholic school girl and she wants nothing to do with these guys and she's upset that her brother died. And that scene, without the glove, without the glove, you'd spend the whole time sitting there going, why is she still hanging around him? Like, what is she still doing there? Like, she would walk away by now. By him picking up the glove and fiddling with the glove and not giving it back to her, What's so impressive about Brando is he's not just making it easier for himself, giving himself something to do in the scene, but he's making it easier for her because now she can justify her character not leaving. And now she can play that kind of inner turmoil of, I kind of want to stay around this guy, but I know I shouldn't. So because he has my glove, I guess I have to stick around. And it just adds a, a dynamic for both of them that makes the scene more interesting. And I think that's what's so impressive of Brando, too, is that he was not just a you know a gifted actor, but a generous actor to his scene partners. With, well, which is kind of funny because there are stories where he's really just not a generous actor on this movie. That, <laughs> I mean, he would, it was in his contract where he could only work until 4 p.m. And then because he had to go to intense therapy sessions to work through his issues with his parents, which uh Rod Steiger kept talking about until the day he died of just, and fucking Brando, he wouldn't, in that famous, uh, I could have been a contender, he's like, well, Brand- I-, I was on the other side of the camera for his close-ups, but he wouldn't fucking do the lines for me on his, on my close-ups, so, uh, you know, cool, good, good job, Brando, which is just, uh, you know, people are, people are interesting. They, they have layers. <laughs> this is, this is now, I think, the second episode in a row we've recorded where the Criterion disc for the movie features one of the, uh, co-stars of the film talking about how they hated the lead, right? <laughs> Cause on this one, the Criterion for On the Waterfront, they do have footage of Rod Steiger, like Tom saying, going, yeah, so they had the, they had the continuity guy reading opposite me because Brando had to, had to just abandon us. 
And uh, we just did, Jay, Some Like It Hot, and apparently Tony Curtis despised working with Marilyn Monroe, and they have footage of old man Tony Curtis saying... It was like kissing Hitler. So really, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. By the time this is out, you know, you, by the time your episode's out, that episode will already be out, Jay. So just go back and listen to Some Like It Hot. If you're not too busy um, filming uh, Hobbs and Shaw Three: uh, Revenge of of Street Party Kid, I'll try to find <laughs> by the time busy schedule. Yeah, between Vin's coffee breaks and between uh, yeah, John Cena's, uh, I don't know, workout session. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to find some time. Do you think, I mean, Vin Diesel's got a lot of control in that movie. Do you think he knows you now? Do you think he's seen enough that he knows you? I, I, no, no, he doesn't know me, but I, I will tell you who who knows me. I think John Cena knows who I am. I think. I you think? think? Because, because he he was filming his scene. Uh, well, I, a little behind the scenes thing. This, these, uh, when I shot the movie, uh, it was like overnight show. It was like. 12 a.m. to like 8 a.m. and 12 a.m. to like 12 p.m. I think. But anyways, um, he was leaving as the extras were coming in to film their scenes. Actually, so um, I think as I was uh, entering the set, I just saw this huge guy. I thought it was a body double, though. It was just huge. It, the guy is like built, like he built like a football player. Um, and uh, I just saw him like exit the set of the the car, and then I was like, I was like, that's probably the stuntman and then turns around it's john cena john cena and like the extras start going crazy but it, it was, we had to keep air professionals mm-hmm. on set obviously because you know yeah we're so he just walks up and towards me and yeah as as he was walking up towards me um i didn't know what to say i, I was just my hands were sweaty i didn't know you know i, I was literally starstruck i think <laughs> He had a handkerchief that I think he was that he was holding onto, I think. And I was I was trying to pick it up and then trying to give it back to him because I have an excuse now to interact with this guy. So I was like, I'm gonna give this back to him. And then as I was going to him, an assistant came up to me and is like, Oh, yep, I got that. And John heard that. He said thanks to the assistant, which in turn means he said thanks to me, right? So indirectly I had a kind of interaction with John Cena. So, so this was your Brando with the glove moment, and he was your Eva Marie Saint. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> yes, that there you go, there you go. Yep, yep. I was just in the moment. I was like, I'm gonna pick up this. I'm gonna fucking pick up the thing because this guy probably. You know, I'm gonna, right? I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get back to John. Yeah, yeah. And then you'd, and you'd pick it up, but you wouldn't give it back to him. You'd fiddle around with it, and then you'd sit on a swing set in a small New York mm-hmm. City park, and he'd have mm-hmm. to talk to you, right? Yeah. That would work. <laughs> But so to clarify, Vin Diesel may not know you. So what you're saying is, if you run into Vin, he would say, "I don't know you, but it feels like I do." Uh, That's the chorus yeah, of his I, song. I, He's got a single out now, Jay. The song of the summer. Oh my, that went right by me. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Mike. Good job. <laughs> I do what I can. I do what I can. We know I'm a comedic genius. I wrote Guy yes, at sir. Bar. There's that raging wit from Kate. Yeah, there we go. My crowning success. <laughs> now I make films no one watches. Um, but yes, hey, I still watch them. I still watch them. No, the new ones. The new ones that no one watches. Mike, you'll be you'll be happy to know this. Once in a while, every actually, maybe on a weekly basis, I go back and watch Kate on I, a I weekly basis. Watch, yeah, you just want on a weekly basis. <laughs> I somehow so. I don't think that's made you real. I'm gonna take a shot in the dark here and say. Uh, did not make at it real. first, I was considering putting it. Well, I was trying to make a dramatic reel, actually. So okay. I don't have enough 
comedic stuff. But yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. So um, maybe when I make a comedic film, I'll, I'll put that in for sure. So <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know, Mike. Yeah, you know. surely, <laughs> surely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to talk about this performance. And in fact, if I may, I want to bring in uh, a little bit of. A quote from, uh, you know, somebody you were at least a big fan of back in the day. I'm sure you still are, which is talking about what the film does and, and, and about not just Brando's performance, but about the naturalism of all the performances, which is that in his documentary, A Letter to Elia, uh, Martin Scorsese noted, uh, talking about the importance of On the Waterfront, he said, it's the faces, the bodies, the way they moved, the voices, the way they sounded. They were like the people I saw every day. It was as if the world that I came from, that I knew, mattered. And I feel like that's something that, you know, it, we can remark upon this film for the drama, we can remark upon this film for the performances, but there's also an element with this film of humanity showing a side of uh, America that really hadn't been portrayed on screens that much, you know. Well, there's a grit and a grime to it that Hollywood movies w- just wouldn't do. Hollywood is all about glitz and glamour and, like, big plot ideas and like you know whatever uh you know hitchcock was it was rearing in at this time i mean uh grace kelly turned down this role to do rear window i mean this like hitchcock was on a roll these are the kind of movies that get made like there's no movies about in america at least uh, about just guys that go to work and barely scrape by and whatever money they do get they drink themselves into oblivion down at the bar and uh you know uh it's like it's it's the casting of all those other guys. They all have like the guys in the mob have that punchy palooka face that that like that look of. I mean, we saw it last year with guys with the guys in Uncut Gems of just like, oh yeah, that's the guy you don't want to piss off if you like walking down the street. Uh, there's there's a lot of guys like that. Uh, the longshoremen they have that look of guys that have been working for years and they're just tired and beaten down and sun. Just like that constant sunburn where they now just look like a catcher's mitt. Um, yeah. It's yeah. just it's yeah. it's just that that grit and grime that we that starts. I don't know if it, I, I you know I don't have the fucking history books. It, it may have started something here, but like on the waterfront's a big part of getting us to that place where the seventies and guys like Scorsese can make movies about people that aren't glamorous. Right. Well, they actually he actually Ely actually cast actual longshoremen. In the film, actually, yeah. yeah, 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 and um, they shot on location, um, which helped it tremendously, and yeah, as as Tom said, it 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 just felt like you put a camera there and almost like a documentary, just start recording these uh, people's everyday lives, and um, yeah, I think that's something that just added to it was, you know, everything in the uh, that came out uh around that time the hollywood studio system you know they never saw anything like that everything was just kind of a little bit more mechanical in a way and just uh you know shot in studios um and uh with this one i think uh with obviously it being a very personal film to Ely, i think um it uh it kind of uh raised that kind of turned this kind of um, studio system, this, this film, uh, these films coming out these, in this era as something that you could look at and be like, wow, this is like almost like watching uh, a documentary uh, of, of the times, essentially. So, um, you know, because I mean, 54, this is like we're getting to that point in Hollywood studio filmmaking where it's like, okay, shit, things aren't working so great. There's this goddamn TV thing. We gotta like make these three hour musicals and biblical <laughs> epics and 
it, that's a stark contrast to what this thing is doing, and it it worked. I mean, anytime something new happens, it could just not work. I mean, mm-hmm. last week we talked about intolerance, which was you know D.W. Griffith trying something, and it worked. Uh, maybe not at the time, but it worked. Uh, you got Elix and he's fucking trying something. I mean, because even like Streetcar Named Desire had a bit of that stagey quality to it, filming on like sets and all that. This is just, I mean, this is like the like watching the next stage of cinema happen right in front of your eyes on every level: directing, acting, writing, you know, location scouting, and all that. Which also just maybe it's just me, or but I just feel like in the grand scheme of when people talk about the most beautiful movies of all time, I do. I kind of feel like sometimes we overlook a lot of black and white movies will go to shit like Lawrence of Arabia or Vertigo or whatever. But like, this is a beautiful fucking movie. Yeah. This is a gorgeous movie. It, it, it feels easy because it, it has a kind of documentary feel, but these are carefully composed shots and the lighting is perfect and the shadows where they are are great. I, this is just gorgeous. Like, it, this is not like some worker, some B movie. This guy, you know, put the craft in. He put the work into the craft. And it's interesting, oh, yeah. Tom, that you talk about uh, 1954 and the way that Hollywood movies were, because I think that one thing that really strikes me is that 1954 is a year that really, you know, while a lot of the Hollywood movies, yeah, were a little more uh, stagey normal, the fact that 1954 isn't just the year of On the Waterfront, it's also the year of uh, Kur- Kurosawa's Seven Samurai is that year. Oh, yeah. um, Fellini's La Strada is that year. And... On the more blockbustery side, Godzilla is that year. Oh, hell yeah. And Toho fucking went in in 54. Jesus. And the thing about that that I think is so interesting, and, and of course Sancho the Bailiff and Senso and things like that, but just the fact that this was a year where all of those films, to one degree or another, were foreign films. Like Godzilla, especially, they had to do an English language uh, dub of it, were foreign films that American audiences were so hungry for that they were like, yeah, sure, I'll watch this. You know, I'll go see it with the subtitles. I'll go to whatever theater will play it. That they were so hungry for something new. And I think the the stories about On the Waterfront and how when it came out, there were lines outside the theater, around the theater, and people noted they were all the kinds of guys you didn't want to mess with, the tough-looking guys, the real longshoremen, the real, you know, union guys, the real connected guys got a chance to see themselves on screen. There was an appetite for it. It's, it's similar thing happens in the 60s and the 70s. Like, uh, Corman talks about this all the time, how he saw that there was a hunger for something new, and he took advantage of that. And he was, like, the main distributor for Bergman movies and Kurosawa movies and Fellini and shit. He would, he, he would put these movies, he would put, like, Caged Heat, like, as an A feature, and the B feature would be like the seventh seal by Berg and people would stay. I mean, people want new shit, which is why this movie works. And then as time goes on, the, the film brats take over in the seventies. Uh, people don't want the same shit as much as people bemoan sequel, sequel, sequels. People want something new. And this really fulfilled that. And as someone who worked not as a longshoreman, but as a union worker in a factory for a few years, this feels like even in the 20, 21st century, this feels like honest and real and what those guys are like. And there's, I mean, you know, I, I it's, it's going to be this thing we're, we're going to have to keep doing with this, which is, uh, cause I, I was about to bring it back to the same topic. 
I feel like this is going to be a thing where there's so much to talk about this movie, but also the sun at the center of this universe. We're going to keep circling back to Brando. I, th- I thought there might be a uh, bigger elephant in the room with this movie. No, 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 no. The thing we're going to keep circling back to in a positive sense, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, well, depending on who you are, circling around the sun isn't a positive thing. Yeah. So. so let me, uh, I, I want to just like, I was thinking about the moment you know this movie is different. The moment, because we've talked about on the show before how uh, those of us that love movies, and Jay, I'm sure you've had this experience too. Um, we all remember like some movie, whether it's something we watched on video or more often something that came out in theaters, a movie that like you sat down and saw in theaters and a moment happens where you just feel a jolt and go like, I'm seeing something special now. Like a moment happens where you just, you know, in that moment, like I'm seeing something I haven't seen before. I'm seeing something special. And I wonder, you know, I, I talked about like recent ones. Like I remember like, and it's late in the film, but I remember sitting, I could, I could tell you the theater I was in. You know, most times I don't remember where I saw something. I could tell you the theater I was in. I could probably tell you the seat. When I saw Moonlight uh, for the first time, and that moment when Chiron says, you're the only one, the only one that ever touched me, like, I just felt that moment, like, oh, I'm seeing something incredible. And so, when it comes to these films that we cover on the show, I try and put myself in that place and imagine, like, what that moment was. And to me, like, the moment somebody had to know they were seeing something special is early on, you know, Terry goes and he convinces the guy to go up on the roof, they throw him off. You know, Brando gathers with the other guys, and the way that he delivers that line of "I thought they were going to talk to him," you immediately you're like, "I haven't seen yeah. this before." He's not, yeah. he's not sobbing, and he's not angry. He's just wounded. It's just so vulnerable. Yeah, and that's really what Brando was was really good at. I mean, I, I said it before in the beginning. I think in my when my dad talked about Brando, he's like, "That's." that's a man right there and it's not just your you know just you know it was him not just being this masculine macho kind of man which he was also very good at but it, the fact that what made him more of a man is because he was so he was able to show this this vulnerability you know on on screen as you said so and he was just kind of yeah it, it was almost like he was this wounded animal and he had these also like very animalistic movements as well but you know and then you know he would kind of show it physically or he would kind of you know if he was hurt he wouldn't say it out loud but you knew it and but and then if he was mad you know he wouldn't automatically go to rage mode but he would just feel it kind of boiling up inside and him just also that was also a heartbreaking moment for me but also when i think one of the scenes you know that's one of the most famous scenes obviously for brandon that's most talked about in, in, in the film is obviously between him and um, his brother character was played by Rod Steiger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who was also a tour de force in the movie. He was, he didn't have, Rod Steiger didn't have much screen time, but he was also incredible in that movie. Got him a nomination. Uh, yeah, it did. It did. Um, but uh, yeah, everyone talks about that. I could have been a contender. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yeah. You know, it's a great scene as well, but the scene that really, broke my heart even more was this is him between him and even Marie Saint even Marie Saint in that in that bar where mm-hmm. she's asking pleading with him to like to testify he's like I, what do you want me to do I, I I can't do anything about it what do you want me to do and I was like oh my gosh like this guy's actually you know it, it, it torn right now and you could 
hear it in his voice. You could see it in his body language. You know, he does not know what to do. He's just this lost, almost kind of dog in a sense. So, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, just that vulnerability, I think, is what really transcended his, his, his performance more, more so. Yeah. Oh, and it's, it's great. I, I love that you mentioned the kind of animalistic, uh, physicality of Brando because it just makes me think, you know, again, 1954, you've got Brando in On the Waterfront and Toshiro Mifune in Seven Samurai and like just those two both being those, those, you know, tortured animals on screen. You're just like, oh, the old way of acting is dead. This will, this doesn't, it's over now. No one's going to want to watch, you know, the, the over the top shtick of a, you know, of a Sabrina now. Like no one's going to want to watch this anymore. It's done. It's in the, it's, it's over. Uh, you know, no one's gonna, no one's gonna really want to check out, uh, you know, what John Wayne is doing flying a plane. Uh, you know. John, gee, John Wayne's playing Genghis Khan. Oh boy. Gotta see that. <laughs> no, that, that 54 is the year of the high and the mighty, Tom, which off mic you and I have talked about is one of the most batshit insane films, uh, in history. Uh, Jay, what if I told you that the high and the mighty is a movie that simultaneously inspired airplane and features a moment that is more shocking and aged worse than anything in the movie Airplane. Really? Oh, yeah. Uh, we may not... I, I don't intend to keep it in the show, but I will tell you uh, at some point okay. the, the scene. I always watch the other, like, Oscar nominees before we do these episodes, and I was just like, what the fuck? What is this? Wow. So, wow. for context, uh, Jay, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's what else was in theaters uh, when On the Waterfront came out. <laughs> But I, I, I think when we talk about On the Waterfront and, and, and realism, there's also a lot of realism in Elie Kazan's filmmaking. One thing that I really appreciated uh, in this film, and I made a note of it because of how exciting it was, this is 1954, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The film is, uh, if you're a, a not-white person, not a great time to uh-huh. be in movies, right? I mean, I should say to its Wait, credit, you know, you get Carmen Jones in 1954, but that's, you know, that's the exception that proves the rule. You know, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, while it's not, you know, the most, the fact that there is a black longshoreman featured in the film, got yeah. lines, he's, I mean, our, we, one of our earliest episodes we did was on best years of our lives and our guest, uh, Alec Gillis, uh, pointed out like, he was, you know, for me, whenever I watch a period film, especially a war movie, like I'm looking for like, oh, where's the black guy? Like, how do they include this? It's not like it's something that's remarked upon. He's just, he's there. He's part of the crew. Uh, you know, he's given lines and it just, even that, just that, that moment of inclusion just adds to the realism of it because quite frankly, you know, that's what it was down at the like, You know, it wasn't just, uh, like it wasn't only like Tom says, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the white guys whose, whose faces have been destroyed by the sun and their cracks. Like, you know, it's, that's, that's how it looked down there. And I think that that moment of inclusion that Ilya Kazan kind of fights for in this movie, it just makes it all feel so much more honest. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you know the act? Did the actor's name? Uh, I I did, but I don't have it in my notes. Uh, Is it... So now I feel like a dick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's Rudy Bond. Is it? I think I, I, don't, I don't know. I forgot his name. Uh, yeah, but uh, just just his inclusion in the film automatically makes the film much more. Uh, there's like a more of a a conscience conscience to the film. I think that. That, that that's added when you when you add that kind of diversity into it, and uh, he was in a sense uh, kind of a moral figure in, in the film as well. He 
I think he he assisted uh, even Marie Saint's character with um, kind of closing, uh, you know, accepting her brother's uh, her brother's loss and all that, and uh, on top of it being also adding more realism to it as well. So um, yeah, I think Elia was definitely uh, definitely a he, there was good intent there, and um, it was a good move on his part for sure. <laughs> uh, for the record, uh, Rudy mm-hmm. Bond was a, a a white dude in The Godfather. However, My bad. from what I can gather, <laughs> and this is uh-huh. becoming difficult to search, it appears the actor in On the Waterfront who we're discussing, his name is Don Blackman. Don, Don Blackman. Don Blackman, okay. however, becomes uh-huh. difficult to search him because when you search Don Blackman, the first person that comes up is, of course, <laughs> the pianist from Parliament Funkadelic and Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> who is yep, yep. not the, the same man up. because he was born a year before On the Waterfront comes out. Definitely not. But, Definitely not. but Don Blackman, <laughs> yeah. I did find him, you know, as you pointed out, Jay, and it, I uh, gotta be honest, does not seem like uh, the rest of the roles he was offered in his career uh, are up to the uh, standards of On the Waterfront. Unfortunately, no. Does not appear... I'm not. I. I think if I read some of the characters, I make get canceled. Honestly, so. Uh oh. But he was in Scream, Blackula Scream, I and mean, that's good. That's a good movie. So. Was he? He's, he's yeah, that's his final character. role. Is Dollman in Scream, Blackula Scream? Oh. And he did an episode of The Man from Uncle, uh, where he played a witch doctor. Oh man. He's a Zulu guard and I spy. The point is, Hollywood was a terrible place if you were not a white dude. I, I think Don, poor Don was born in the wrong era. I mean, I mean, I, actually, I mean, let me I rephrase mean, that. Hollywood's still a terrible place if you're not a white dude, realistically. But <laughs> as I'm sure you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm discovering. Oh, very shortly, very shortly, it definitely isn't. I mean, give a little more credit. I mean, there's definitely more roles being created, but. It's not as it's not in the level as obviously the white actors are getting. You know, there's there's and with those little roles that they're uh, creating in Hollywood for you know me being Asian, uh, a lot of the Asian, there's so many Asian actors just going for that one role. Where you know for obviously Caucasian actors, um, uh, I'm not discrediting them at all, but you know there's just so many more roles available for them that they have just a little more chance and opportunity but uh yeah i mean there is a change uh slow but sure change occurring obviously uh in in the industry but uh it could be happening a little bit maybe a little more faster (laughs) listen you know a in 1954 street party kid you know would have been a white kid you know (laughs) and now look at the progress we've made a white kid with with freckles and just uh yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> Though, you know what? On that note, uh, seriously, you know, mm-hmm. I want to transition into talking about another actor that I want to highlight from this film, who is another case of an actor who was uh, was supposed to be an extra and was uh, pulled out of the crowd and into uh, stardom, which is let's talk about Thomas Hanley. Does anybody recognize the name Thomas Hanley? I see him here. Thomas Hanley uncred- was uncredited. Uncredited. They have him as uncredited. Are you shitting yes, me? Yes, they do. He plays. What so a plays terrible <laughs> sons of bitches! He's a major role. Those bastards. Um, yeah, Thomas Hanley. He was brought in to tend to the pigeons, Brando's character's pigeons. 
but oh, yeah. they thought he was yeah. he had such an appeal that they put him in the film. He is the kid that like does the play boxing with um with Terry and you know ultimately yeah. kills the bird and goes a pigeon for a pigeon. Yeah, he had a huge climactic scene actually. Yeah. He was yeah. he was not an actor before that. Mm-hmm. And what's weird is uh, they have an interview with him on the Criterion disc. It's the only role he ever did. He's only acted the really? one time. And I put on the feature on the Criterion disc while I was getting ready for this show. And he was talking and he's telling a story where he's like, you know, ah, you know, my father, he was a longshoreman and, uh, you know, he got blackballed uh, for, for going up against the union. He got killed. And I'm like sitting there going, man, this guy, this actor created all this background for his character and only then did I realize, no, that really happened. He was a kid wow. whose whose dad was was rubbed out the same way they do the guy in in Waterfront. Like that oh was his God. actual real life experience. And then he, uh, he he got the role in the film. He plays the part. Uh, oh. He he seems to think he was not very good in the movie because he was too much too emotional. He says. Um, I thought I thought he was fantastic. Oh, he's exceptional, but it's just the way that he's like. I thought I came off like a sissy. I was crying too much, and uh, and so he does this role and then proceeds to become a longshoreman in Hoboken and just wow. does that for the rest of his life. And he, uh, I think, he retired uh, about a decade ago, and SAG made him an honorary member last year. Huh. Wow. So. You are right. He only has one credit to his name on the waterfront. Yeah, wow. yeah. What a what a fascinating individual. <laughs> like truly, yeah, just holy shit. It's kind of impressive. Like I, I think I believe he's still around, and yeah. somehow Eva Marie really? Saint's still kicking. Yeah, she is. She's still alive. Still kicking, she's and alive. I still still works relatively. I mean, she was apparently was a voice the voice of Katara in Legends of Korra recently. Which is I did not know that. fucking wild. Not know that. <laughs> so as of right now, her first screen appearance is on the waterfront. That was her first screen appearance. I should say first movie, really. Her first film on the waterfront wins the Academy Award. And as of today, yeah. her most recent performance is six episodes as the voice of old Katara in Legends of Korra. That was a good show, though. Oh, it it, it it fucking slaps, <laughs> Jay. If you have not gotten on board the last Airbender train, jump on it. I, I, I was debating on it. There's, there's a lot of fellow fellow Airbender friends that are trying to make me convert, and and uh, I'm, I'm thinking about. It. I I want I want to give it a shot. I, I give it a shot. Uh, the, the the girlfriend and I started watching it. It fucking slaps. It rules. <laughs> it rules so. I will take your hard. word for it. Uh, yeah. it it rules. Um, we should note like that's. For at first, as great as Brando is in so many others, she is incredible in this film. I keep thinking of other actresses from that time. You know, we mentioned Grace Kelly turned it down. I can't think of anybody who could have done this. Yeah, there's, as you said, Mike, there's nobody else that could have played that part. And, and I, I agree with you because, yeah, I think Eva Marie Saint had a screen test with, with Brando. Um, and the chemistry, again, was just is there like you just couldn't that's not practice that's not rehearsed it just was lightning in a bottle i think so um elia kazan saw that and kazan saw that and he's just like that's i mean that's that's i'm gonna cast her that at that moment i think so um 
you know, you don't find that kind of chemistry often between actors. You know, actors who come in, read with each other, you know, play off each other, but the chemistry that a lot of, I think, directors and a lot of people talk about, it's it's something that's just, I'm just going to say, you either have it you don't, or you don't with the, with, with your partner. And um, she had it with uh, Brando. Yeah. And and great actors can cannot have chemistry. I mean, I think about the fact that this same year, 1954, Billy Wilder's Sabrina uh, comes out. No one is going to say that Humphrey Bogart or Audrey Hepburn are not good performers, but they do not have chemistry in that motion picture, and it and it you can feel it. Even Marie Saint was a, a part of the act studio. Yes, so she yeah she was she was she she came from that world and actually had worked with uh, Brando. Um, you know, she spoke positively of him. I know he's kind of a controversial guy on this set and then, you know, in the future, but, uh, she spoke positively of him. Um, and it's funny too that, you know, we say, uh, only Eva Marie Saint could have done this because it's such perfect casting and she, uh, she won the Oscars, correct? Mike? Yes, correct. So, um, you know, like I mentioned before, it's funny. They wanted Grace Kelly at first because she was a big name, but she turned it down to do Rear Window, which I think was a good choice, uh, for both actresses. Yes. Um, but it's also fucking funny too because, her and Brando are the same age, but she's supposed to be like 19 years old and he's supposed to be like an over the hill bum. <laughs> like probably 30, 32, yeah. maybe, you know, let's say he was, you know, whatever, but like, oh yeah, there's a good 11 year. No, there's not. They are very clearly the same age, but you know, that's the magic of movies. Now, fellas. it's funny you mentioned mm-hmm. even recent being in the actor studio and all at around this, just to tie it in the weird coincidence that this sort of connects uh, it's like one degree of separation from our last episode, because um, we just did Intolerance, and when Even Marie Saint was auditioning for uh, On the Waterfront, she was in a theatrical production, I believe it was, uh, I believe it was a play, it might have been television, but I think it was a play, of The Trip to Bountiful, where her co-star was Lillian Gish. hey D.W. Griffith's uh, muse for Birth of a Nation and Intolerance. So well, that's a bad muse to be. <laughs> yeah, not not the best. Look, I helped a guy restart the KKK. I am so happy. Look, Tom, Tom, Tom. We're done talking about a movie where a director did something so controversial that it affected the real world. I mean, Ilya Kazan is is squeaky clean. No controversy around him or any political okay. decisions that he made. As I mentioned before, uh, I think there is something else that kind of dominates the conversation about this movie. And as electric, game-changing as uh, Marlon Brando is, uh, Ilya Kazan did some shit and uh, made this movie uh, in response to said shit he pulled. And uh, even today, it's a controversial movie and a controversial topic to talk about because uh fucking guy named names at the HUAC hearings and... Uh, kind of made this movie in response to that which is uh you know not great i i think we should make it clear though um it's it is not as though and this is what complicates his his legacy but it's it's not as though he was called before huac and was forced to name names you know i mean no. in terms of like there were people who were put in a position where blackmail was involved um and difficult decisions were made and i while i'm not going to come out and say it was not a difficult decision for Ilya Kazan because he has certainly said many times that it was. But he was a friendly witness. 
So yep. he he volunteered this testimony. Now, as I, Orson Welles uh, so wonderfully said in uh, that clip we saw a few weeks ago of Orson just roasting Ilya Kazan at a uh, at an event. I think. What do you say? He was basically going like, yeah, he he was a stoolie, whatever, blah blah blah, you know. And I believe his, just, I believe in his guttural wail. He, went, he was a traitor, something. He like was that. a traitor, and then he then he waits a bit and he goes, "But I won't say anything about the Ilya Kazan. He was a great filmmaker." <laughs> it was it was the original Rick James. Yeah, I stepped on his couch. Like it was a great moment. Um, <laughs> I look, I I think that it's complicated. Uh, you go into any, you know. Just to keep going back to the wonderful Criterion disc they put out, um, everything from the Martin Scorsese conversation that they have on that disc to the Kazan documentary that's on there to the audio commentary to the booklet, everything comes back to the complicated I mean, elements shit. of... Even Zoe Kazan keeps getting shit for what he did. And that was her fucking grandfather. Like... It's like a literal sins of the father and now sins of the grandfather have affected this family for decades now. And it does, it's not going to stop anytime soon because I mean, he did what he did and as much as he could apologize for it, he helped ruin a lot of people's lives. And as much as he regretted it, I mean, listen, this isn't a judgment. This is just literally just like we can't, just like we can't separate D.W. Griffith not even just from Birth of a Nation, but from Intolerance, you kind of just can't, especially because of what this movie is about. So let's let's touch on this a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, Jay, I'm, I'm glad you were at least prepared for, for us going down this road. I'm glad we're not blindsiding you with this turn. Oh, but. yeah, I mean, you can't re- you can't avoid this story yeah. behind, the, behind the film when you're talking about On the Waterfront, I think. Uh, but, the thing, yeah. I, I think the thing that damns Kazan more than naming names... Um, you know, I mean, look, Kazan has said that the reason he named names was that when he joined the Communist Party briefly, as he did, it was because of their opposition to Nazism and fascism. But then he grew disillusioned as he discovered the real rigidity and the the forcing you to adhere to the party line. And then he started hearing about the Soviet atrocities and Solnitsyn and all that. And so I, I... And I think that it also becomes harder to understand that and to understand uh, the opposition to communism because I think in our in our life today, it's easy to be to see uh, McCarthy as the charlatan he was and to see the Red Scare as absurd panic. And also, it doesn't help that you know to not get too uh, you know dismissive. Um, uh, modern day Twitter when it comes to Soviet atrocities is sort of like uh, that scene in The Simpsons when Milhouse comes out of the uh, mattress and said, uh, oh, it's it hurts, and Homer just goes, no, it doesn't. Like, you uh, do feel like, you do feel like, you know, when Twitter kind of, you know, when they go like, well, you know, there were gulags, and Twitter goes, no, they weren't. I think that, well, it, so that becomes a little harder, but I think what really damns Kazan is not even the fact that he named names. But the fact that he took out a statement, he paid for placement in the New York Times, I believe it was, and puts out a statement righteously defending his naming names and 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 why he did it, that I think just stands as... Well, and also because this is a movie that is about 
the pros of ratting people out. Yeah. This is a pro stool pigeon movie. I mean, there's no other way around it. And, um, you know, just a point Mike made a second ago. Uh, I do think we're kind of, uh, living in a moment not too dissimilar from the red, uh, the McCarthy hearings of just, oh, well, you know, communism was bad, but it's also like, yeah, but 10 years ago we were teamed up with them uh, to fight the Nazis. So it's weird to say you were bad being one of them at the time. Um, where we're now living in a time where truth just doesn't matter. And you could say, well, no, this thing happened. This is bad. And they go, no, it's not. I saw it. It's because Rudy Giuliani sweated on TV and yelled at me. And you go, <laughs> well, um, I guess things are just weird again. But yeah, I mean, this movie is, I mean, take, take, take away the, the newspaper ad thing. Cause I didn't even know that. I did some research oh, and I didn't, yeah, I didn't know go that. Into the, they, they reprinted in the Criterion book that actually, I feel like I'm just shilling for the Criterion disc and I'm not, but. Well, they hey, it's November. It the this mail is on. Um, Tom, by the time this comes out, it's January. <laughs> but like, if you take all that extra textual stuff out, it's it's a pro ratting out movie. And then you hear about what Kazan did, and you go, "Oh, this is really weird that he made a cinematic subtweet to everyone that was mad about him, naming names." And as great as the movie is, and it is, and this isn't a case of like uh birth of a nation or intolerance where it's like, oh, it's important, but also like poisonous, even though intolerance isn't, but you know what I mean? Like Gone with the Wind, yes. where you go, oh shit, this thing is poisonous, but it's important. It's like, no, this is like a good movie and it's not hateful at all, but fucking Elio, why did you do it? God damn it. Why did you fucking do it? I have one quote here from the statement that he made. Um, we're talking about why he didn't name names sooner. Um, and I think it explains kind of what drew him to this film. Now, admittedly, uh, I think we should also address that, uh, this was not the primary motive behind him doing this film because the script did not even feature Terry Malloy and the longshoreman testifying until about the seventh or eighth draft, uh, which did not get written until the actual longshoreman in the real uh, world case that this was based on, actually testified. Uh, so it's it's not as though Anthony uh, uh, Anthony the Potenzo right was the longshoreman that was based on. Yes, I yes, I believe yeah, that's the, correct. He was the, he was a whistleblower. Uh, yes, I think, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Kazan said in his statement, "I was also held back by a piece of specious reasoning which has silenced many liberals. It goes like this: You may hate the communists." But you must not attack them or expose them, because if you do, you are attacking the right to hold unpopular opinions, and you are joining the people who attack civil liberties. Uh, he um he did uh show re- he did say he regretted what he did later on in life. Am yes. I correct? Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, so I have a reading that you could see with this movie that I don't you know maybe necessarily agree with, but um. I think this movie, because as we said, you said, it took a while in dress to get to the story that was actually filmed. I think, whether he knew it or not, I can't say what his intentions were. I think this movie and the Terry Malloy character is wish fulfillment for him. In the sense that I think the, the J. Lee Cobb mob character is McCarthy. Okay. I think he is saying he should have stood up to the bullying thug who, without that power that the government gave him, as Brando says, 
Without your pistol arrows, what are you? Mm. You're nothing. I think you could read this as he wishes he could be like Terry Malloy, seeing that he could, that these, this bullying thug could destroy his life, destroy the life of the people around him, even the people he may not necessarily agree with the things they're doing or saying, and be afraid, but then stand up. And then by standing up to this guy, reveal that he's a, he's a emperor with no clothes on and that everyone around him will finally stand up and say enough is enough, which is essentially what fucking happened with McCarthy. And I think you could read the movie like that. And I think that's why, despite the controversy, I mean, for many other reasons, but why this movie still plays today, because it's not anti-union, it's anti-corruption because this, like, Carl Malden says early in the movie, he's like, why aren't you guys working? Isn't the union supposed to get get you guys work? And then, like, later in the movie, it's basically like, yeah, there's unions, but these fucking guys, like, if we get these guys out, even at the committee meeting, it's like, yeah, this is the worst union in the country. We gotta get these guys out and get the union back on track. Like, this is not anti-union. This is anti-corruption. And I think you can read it as he saying Joseph McCarthy was a corrupt son of a bitch who bullied people into doing things they didn't want to do. And if you didn't play along, you got destroyed. And if you played along, it destroyed your soul. Uh, I I agree with Tom, actually, yeah. I, I do think it was definitely... I mean, obviously, it's obvious that Terry Malloy's character had a... You know, a lot of it was, I think, based not only on the longshoreman, the actual longshoreman, but also uh, Kazan's uh, whole incident as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I actually do think that that is exactly what uh um kazan was indirectly saying or more so directly probably saying to the audience in, in a way i guess kazan was also good at being unequivocally himself i think in the movie so i don't i don't think he can obviously he can't change the past he can't change what he's done but uh i do think that in a sense this was not so much as a an apology letter but more so just like he's acknowledging his own sins he's he's no he he knows what he did just like brando like he he's been ratting on himself like in the movie he says he's been ratting on himself all these years and that's kind of exactly what i think kazan was doing uh you know um but um i I do think kazan wants to see himself in in terry malloy for sure and uh yeah and what's the big thing that Brando says in his big scene with his brother? He yeah. threw the game. You know, he he sold his soul for Jay Lee Cobb and the mob. You know, he sold his soul to McCarthy, and it has haunted him. And he now needs to stand up because his eyes are open to what hmm. is wrong with this system. So, again, either directly or indirectly, whether he knew it or not, in the rewrites, it seemed like it got to this place where you can read it as he wishes, or like a wish fulfillment, or him regretting what he did and saying, I kind of wish I stood up. And it, it was good that the guys who did stand up stood up. Now, I, I want to touch on one, uh, you know, there's, there's so much to touch on, but I, I want to touch on something that we have not addressed yet. Um, and, and Jay, I want to, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this, you know. I hate to keep going back to the past, but especially given some of the some of the other films that you made back when we were young and, and the subject touches on which is we have somehow not touched on uh, Carl Malden yet priest. yeah in in the role yeah. of the priest and and the you know uh, the fact that 
the film, the real, the first character change we get in the movie, the first uh, development we get of a character is him recognizing that to to basically to live uh, a just life and to walk in 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 uh, Christ's footsteps as you would uh, is not to just sit back and preach, but to actually try and do something and mm-hmm. make a change and actually get involved. And he's the catalyst for this change, you know. Otherwise, it's like little atoms bouncing back and forth, you know, with no direction. Yeah. He kind of... Yeah, he does. Um, I'll never forget that, that that shot after he delivers that, that, that monologue uh, to the, the shoreman. Father Carl Marlman is fantastic, fantastic actor. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, as Father Barry, he, he delivered that whole monologue uh, to the shoreman and then... As I think you guys were it wasn't this this also a movie everything works so well here along with the cinematography it, it's a beautiful movie to look at and this is one of the shots that's just gorgeous is when he mm-hmm. I think they he he stands up after he delivers that speech he stands upon uh that rig whatever and then they slowly like he rises up above all the the corrupt you know and all the individuals who and him and uh the uh the other character um I think uh, was that uh, Pop Doyle, I think, or um, yeah, yeah, played by John F. Mm-hmm. Hamilton. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. And uh, they were the only ones that actually mm-hmm. did something. You know, uh, they actually, uh, like in public, defied the corruption or defied one against the mob, essentially. And um, then you see that shot of them being ri- risen up, almost very. You know, you could take it in, in, as a religious imagery, or you could take it as kind of moral imagery. You know, but you know, in the end, you know, it, it's um, his his kind of his his added his um his mission in life in in life kind of you know resonates there just from that one shot essentially. So, uh, yeah, he is the catalyst uh, essentially for the entire film, uh, and um, he's the one who uh, influences uh, Terry Malloy essentially to uh, take action. Um, and there's also that very famous scene in the bar uh, where I think they had, they had issues with it as well. When, um, when uh, Brando uh, had the gun and was threatening everybody. And then I think uh, Carl Malden, uh Father Barry punches him in the face, <laughs> clocks him in the face. Yeah, fucking exactly. clocks him. And that's like, yeah. like that is that first, that was badass. As, as a priest character to do that, you know, it just it defied kind of all the stereotypes I felt. I mean, or just, you know, the kind of thing that you're used to, you're used to seeing. And, uh, and then once Brand- he did that after Brando told him to go to hell and, uh, he clocks him in the face there. And, um, it just shows how, I don't how, how I guess how, how progress, how, how so ahead this film was, you know, um, just through just that one scene only, and of course, many other scenes that we've already talked about, but um, that was just you know that was like a like, like a shocker, like a, just a punch to the audience's face as well. You know, you don't you don't see a priest do that, and you don't see that word being tossed around. You know, especially to, towards a priest as well. So um, yeah, and uh, just kind of redefining, in a, yeah, to me, redefining kind of religious figures, uh, making them more relatable making them more you know uh not just these very uh holy saints you know all all the time acting you know all holy but making them human you know in a sense and i think uh eli kazan was good at doing that and scorsese definitely definitely was influenced by that i think yeah for sure yeah well, Molden is, I mean, what they did with the Molden characters is so great because they humanize him, but they also make him 
Christly in the sense that, like, Christ was a shit stirrer. He mm-hmm. caused trouble. He ran the money, the money lenders out of town and with whips. That's what, yeah, that's what Colin Molden's doing. He's trying to run these money men out of town. I mean, the scene at, at, when he's given that speech at the dock is it's basically saying these guys are robbing you and they're not here to help you. They're not your friends. They're not whatever. Like they're, they're bad guys. Like let's like, it's time to stand up and stop being afraid of them and run them out. And he's, he's willing to punch Marlon Brando in the ear. He's willing. He, he doesn't care when these guys start, when some of these guys start throwing fucking food at him. I mean, he's the moral conscience of this world. And it's, it's, he is Christly in that you got to get your hands dirty. And, uh, you know, I just love the line where he's like, Jesus, what Jesus is a union brother. He's right. He's kneeling right here next to your fallen brother. And which goes again to this, like, it, this isn't like an anti-communist or an anti-union movie. It's anti-capitalist. It's anti-corruption. It's, it's, it's such a deep layered movie that's so humanistic and is, has aged so well in a time these days where capital is crushing the working man yet again and all of this stuff and yeah Malden <laughs> Malden rules he's uh one of Brando's guys and and I'm happy you brought up the him getting pelted because I think that that especially this time watching it I, I realized just how how well that telegraphs Terry's turn because you know there's the priest and he's preaching and he's 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 standing his ground making his statement and they're pelting him you know people are throwing shit at him cans and, and food and he doesn't fight back he just stays standing and he stays preaching what he believes in and yeah brando fights somebody and some other people fight somebody but the actual act of heroism in that scene is not punching out one of the guys that's throwing something but it's mauled and standing there taking the blows and in the end the moment of heroism in the film is not the courtroom scene. The courtroom no. scene, many people note, is not a very good scene. But the moment of heroism is that Terry goes down, confronts uh, Lee J. Cobb, and then proceeds to get the shit beat out of him. Yeah. Gets up, and like the Stations of the Cross, in a very, you know, symbolic way, like, walks, bloodied and beaten, to go to work. Now, of course, that's not realistic, that's the moment the movie kind of abandons its realism for a bit because, of course, as Scorsese points out on on the disc, they would have killed him. Like that would he would not oh, he yeah. would not still be walking. They would have just fucking killed him. But it's that yeah. moment of sacrifice, and you realize that the issue when he, when Brando talks about I could have been a contender, you know, I could have been It's not even and and so much throughout the movie he's thinking about his fight and he's you know when he's talking to the the cop and he's mimicking the little punches. And all that, which is so moving. But the fact of the matter is, it's not about that he lost or that he got beaten or whatever. I mean, you know, what what hurts him so much is when Eva Marie Saint calls him a, a, a bum. That wounded don't say that. It's the fact that he threw it all away for nothing. And here, he doesn't fight back. It's not like he's, you know, it's not like he pulls out a pistol and shoots, you know, Lee Cobb or anything like that. He takes the beating. And just like the priest, he just endures that abuse because he's standing by his beliefs and he stands by his convictions and he bloodied and beaten just continues to walk and continue to work. That scene with the priest getting pelted is such a brilliant telegraph of what Terry's ultimate 
sacrifice is going to be. Going back to my point I made before, how how is uh how does how does the crowd turn on Jay Lee Cobb? Lee J Cobb is uh not beat, not after he beats up Brando necessarily. They're turning, not when he's yelling at them, but when an old man throws him into the water and everyone just realizes what a fucking loudmouth clown he is, yeah. and he's nobody. There's more of us. Fuck you. We're done with you. And seeing Brando walk towards the the the, the job, like okay, this is it. McCarthy's done. And and talking about that that ending, you know, again the departure from reality. So much of this movie is grounded in realism, but there are moments of expressionism and symbolism in this film too that I feel like don't get remarked on as much. I mean, you think of it again as the grounded stuff, but. You know, the moment of, of the first, you know, when Terry's up on the roof with his pigeons, framing him through the pigeon cage, you know, which maybe we'd call it on the nose now, but <laughs> the fact that you, yeah, but like the fact that you're framing him trapped in his cage or the moment I love, it's so weirdly, I guess it should be more out of place in a movie that doesn't do shit like this. But I love that when Terry is is talking to uh, Eva Marie Saint and he's telling her what the priest has told her to confess, and instead of hearing him say it again, we get close-ups of her eyes darting around and, like, Brando's face at a close Dutch angle and, and we don't hear it because of the foghorn blasting in the background and all that. You know, it feels like something that would come out of a European mm. film of the time. You know? But it, it even though there should be moments that shatter the reality... Uh, even though the fact that the most famous scene in the film, which we should definitely talk about, but the most famous scene in the film is shot in an obviously, obviously fake back of a car where the producer had just been too cheap to buy uh, rear projections. So they just had to put a, a, a goddamn like Venetian blind in the back of this back seat in this obviously, obviously fake back of a car and yet it remains the most iconic scene of the film because it doesn't matter you're you yeah. so believe you this just let yourself go you i know? mean that's what i think brando well i mean i can't really just give credit for every everybody was just so good in the film like everybody like rod steiger was amazing and i think it just it just transcends like black and white i don't know it just it just makes it look like it's just you're witnessing you know just a conversation essentially essentially and uh between these two characters and uh yeah and then i don't know i, I think it worked that it <laughs> that that fake scene put at the uh, oh yeah near the end of the movie because once you're like into that at, at, into this part you just you're just already in, in it already so um i mean we've both seen this we've all seen this so many times that can i ask the minute you see the back seat and rod steiger in that fake you know the fake back seat did your heart skip a little beat of just like, oh my god, it's gonna happen? Like, oh, we're gonna get to see it again. <laughs> oh bit, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like you know, it's like, it's like when you're watching Avengers Endgame again and you know mm-hmm. Cap's about to pick up the hammer, and you're like, yeah, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen again. Like when you know the minute they sit down on that back seat, like, oh my god, oh, strap in. Oh. So let's talk about it. Let's let's. Let's wind ourselves down. You know, we're going to do some Oscar talk. We can do it all, but let's let's talk about the scene because I'm sure we all have thoughts about the scenes. A scene which uh, Marlon Brando and Steiger were starting to improvise, and Ilya Kazan basically said, "Buddy, <laughs> stop that shit," because 
The script is good. Stop doing this improvising shit. Don't ask Rod Steiger, how's mom? Or do you think the Giants are going to win tomorrow? <laughs> just say, just stick to the fucking script. And, uh, you know, uh, it worked. So, yeah. you know, good call Elia because you just get the entire history of this fucking family, these two brothers. And Steiger's not painted as a complete, like, one-dimensional fucking heel. No. Like, you do see he kind of regrets what happened and he does love his brother, but he's, he also knows, like, he's stuck in this thing and he's got to get his brother to do this thing, but he's not going to kill his brother. And, you know, and again, to go to the fucking age thing, Rod Steiger's playing his older brother. He's a year younger than Brando, so, you know, who cares? It's movies. Hey, uh, the movies. It just works. I mean... yeah. To, to bring back Scorsese, he always talks about cinema as like it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual art form because it's you looking down and watching characters and people. And there's this like, there's just this tragic thing of just no shootout that, you know, he, he died, Steiger dies a few minutes later, but it's just, there's not even a tension of like, oh, they're going to die or there's going to be a fight. It's just, no, just sad scene. This thing that's been boiling for a while and. They, you know, Brando doesn't even yeah. know he's saying goodbye to his brother. Yeah. He doesn't know his brother's about to die. He just, they're just talking. And, I mean, all he knows is his brother was probably told to kill uh, Brando, but uh, he doesn't know his brother's about to yeah. be driven into an execution mm-hmm. and then hung up in an alley, which is yeah. fucking haunting. Like, it, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, no, that scene, I mean, uh, I mean it's, it's, yeah, uh, arguably the most famous scene in, in the movie. Um, but what, like, one of Brando's, I think, Brando's uh, quoted in saying this, but he always wants to surprise the audience. Like, do something that, it, you know, don't do something that everyone knows that you're going to lead up to. Like, don't just pause and then know that, you know, a big speech is coming. You know, to do something like that. He was very good at just pulling out, you know, all the stops, essentially. And I think it was a very subtle moment, but when Rob Steiger's character, uh, he drew the gun out to Brando's character. Brando didn't act in like how many people act in shock or fear or something like that. He acted in disappointment. He was disappointed at, yes. at, at his brother. He's like, really, man? Really? You're going to do this? It's that, it, oh, it's that little sigh. For the, oh, Charlie, it's that little sigh before he's yeah. trying, you're just like, God damn. It, yeah. Run. And then it just, so instead of like it being like this whole Hollywood esque climactic scene, shootout scene, it's more just like, just a heartbreak, just so tragic. It's like, oh, you're my brother. You're my brother, man. You're gonna, really? You're going to do this here now? Like, uh, like you, look what you already put me through, and now you're going to do this? Like, And he feels sorry for him. He feels sorry for him, too. And it's just, yeah. And at the same time, you know, with Steiger, I mean, you know, we talk a lot on the show about how older films mm-hmm. sort of trusted the audience more. Just that great moment when he, you know, whatever the, 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 the actual streets are, but, he, you know, when he Turns out he goes, well, you better make up your mind before we get to, you know, such and such, you know, the corner of, you know, such and such. And, like, that's all that Terry needs to hear, and that's all the audience needs to hear to realize the stakes all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. It just takes one one line, and the fear and desperation in Steiger's voice is all you need to hear. You don't need what so many movies would do now, which is somebody trying, don't you understand? Once we get there, they're either going to kill you or they're going to kill me because they're dangerous guys. Like, they, they don't, you don't need that. You know, you don't need any of that. It, it's, 
you know, like Tom's saying with, with, uh, cause I'm telling him to stick to the script. Like it's such a perfectly constructed scene and it gives these guys just enough to make a meal out of it. There's a reason why this film is in the registry, boys. There's a reason why it won so many Academy Awards. Movie fucking rules. What else can you say? So as always, we wrap this up talking about the Academy Awards. Uh, I like to do this because it, it's interesting to get a sense of like what else was considered great at the time, was considered big at the time, what's lasted, what hasn't. So on the waterfront, one best picture that year. Uh, the other best picture nominees were The Cane Mutiny, The Country Girl, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and Three Coins in the Fountain. It was also, it won Best Director. It won Best Actor for Marlon Brando. It was nominated uh, in Best Supporting Actor for Lee J. Cobb, also for Carl Malden, also for Rod Steiger. The three of them lost to Edmund O'Brien for The Barefoot Contessa. Uh, Best Supporting Actress went to Eva Marie Saint, as we discussed. It also won the category of Best Story and Screenplay. It was nominated for Best Score of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, uh, that incredible Leonard Bernstein score, um, but lost to The High and the Mighty, the John Wayne airplane movie. Uh, it was nominated and won Best Art Direction Black and White, uh, Best Cinematography Black and White, and Best Film Editing. So the only things it lost were uh, Score to The High and the Mighty, and Best Supporting Actor to Edmund O'Brien in the Barefoot Contessa. Now, it's worth noting that Brando's Best Actor win was a surprise. Uh, everybody expected Bing Crosby would win for his role as an alcoholic actor in The Country Girl. And it was interesting because, uh, as somebody noted, it was a rematch between Brando and Bogart, who was up for the Kane Mutiny, because three years prior, Bogart had a surprise Best Actor win for The African Queen over Brando's favorite performance in A Streetcar Named Desire. I also want to note that the other two Best Actor nominees that year were James Mason for A Star Is Born. That's right. The Judy Garland James Mason A Star Is Born was that year. Wound up mostly empty-handed at the Oscars because the Oscars seemingly hate that story. They'll nominate it, but they don't like it. Uh, and the fifth nominee is a fellow named Dan Herlihy. I have mentioned it to Tom before. He should be one of Tom's guys. Dan O'Herlihy was nominated for Robinson Crusoe. Uh, you might also know him uh, as his role uh, of Blackie in Failsafe, a movie Tom recommended on the show recently, or as the old man in RoboCop that goes, you're fired, and gets the guy shot. Or, you know, as the evil wizard in, uh, <laughs> in Halloween, Halloween 3, 3 season, season of the Co Witch. Conal Cochran. Oh, really? You know, wow. Yeah. Why is Dude that rules. the thing you recognize him from, Jay? Because Halloween 3, 3 season rules. of the witch. Because it's Halloween 3, man. Come Jay, on. what happened? Rules. What happened to you when you went West Coast? <laughs> what have you been doing? Um, I, I straightened up. I straightened up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so it was. It was. So on the waterfront, incredibly successful at the Oscars. Another fact I love: Eva Marie Saint's first child was born two days after she won the Oscar. So quite the award. I will say for the record, uh, having watched all the Best Picture nominees. This is one of those years where the winner is so much clearly better than the other, all the others. Like, it's remarkable just how much this ran the table because it was just undeniable. You know, the other films, yeah. and I, I don't hate Kane Mutiny, and I, I quite like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, Country Girls Fine and Three Coins and a Fountain can be forgotten to the dustbin of history, but, but <laughs> it, do you just look at it on the waterfront and you're like, this is so radically different, radically more impressive. Weirdly, on the waterfront, is uh, not only wins picture and director, but it's one of only two films to be nominated in both categories, along with The Country Girl, 
The other Best Picture nominees were snubbed for Best Director in favor of The High and the Mighty, and then two films we've mentioned already, which is uh, Sabrina and Rear Window. See, I didn't even watch any of those other nominees, I think, but I already know that this was <laughs> far ahead of the Absolutely. curve. I mean, come on, Tom. Right, Tom? I mean, listen, guys. On the waterfront, got some news for you. It fucking rules. <laughs> it does. It certainly certainly does. It's very weird. I don't... One of the things is, like, Edmund O'Brien in Barefoot Contessa is not better than any of the three performances nominated for On the Waterfront. I think it was a situation where the waterfront all three being nominated kind of split the vote and also the role of Edwin O'Brien and Jennifer Contessa is a Hollywood insider thing felt very Alan Arkin and Argo kind of vibe that's the only explanation I have for why uh, none of the three guys nominated uh, for you heard it here first Edmund O'Brien can Argo fuck himself <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only other thing I find fascinating is this is seven years after Ilya Kazan had already won best picture and director for Gentleman's Agreement uh, with Gregory Peck uh, so this is his second, uh, you know, set of wins. And I think in combination, you know, the Oscars don't like to reward people too many times. And because he named names, like you can see a world where they really didn't want to, <laughs> to, to recognize him. But it was just undeniable. This film is undeniable, you know? Mm, yeah. I mean, it was just so ahead of its time. It's- like, I mean, it's, I mean, you look at it, you look at it today and you could still relate to what's going on around us right now in this world. And, um, just going up, going up against the status quo, you know, going up against corruption. Um, and yeah, and, uh, this film without, without Marlon's performance in this film, you wouldn't have your, I guarantee you, you wouldn't have your Robert De Niro's, you would not have your, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest in peace. Uh, you will not have, yeah, just so many more people just who studied him just this performance himself uh you would not have robert pattinson who's gonna be a new batman yay and um uh adam yeah. driver adam Austin driver mm-hmm. so much well jay thank you so much uh for joining us i really appreciate it we've we have kept you so long uh you God know damn it. yeah we've so kept long. you we've kept <laughs> you so long and through so many technical issues thank you so much for doing this uh mm-hmm. thank you for coming on the show thank you for picking this film uh, for bringing uh, your perspective and expertise to this, and and for just uh, and and for just letting us catch up for a bit and keeping in touch, it's been it's been truly great, and I'm so glad that uh, that that you came by for this. I really appreciate it, and you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> to wrap up, like we normally do, what films would you guys pick for the registry? A reminder to our listeners: it must be an American film that's at least ten years old. So my pick, uh, you know, obviously Ilya Kazan, uh, you know, as we talk about in the episodes, you know, as a foundational director and this film and its realism has influenced so many filmmakers from uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, you know, there's so many directors, Francis Coppola, so many directors who have been influenced by this, so many directors who wanted to reflect reality and a particular type of person that they felt hadn't been seen on screen. Uh, and I felt like this is one of the ones that I knew early on when we were doing this, uh, when I was, before we started recording episodes, when I went, okay, well, what would I pick for, uh, off the top of my head? And this one hasn't changed since I was conceiving it. And the interesting thing is, this is a movie that I really admire from a filmmaker that I don't really like. And in fact, this is my favorite film of theirs by a long shot, but it has the same feeling of regret. 
And I think that so many movies that are about the blue collar guy, the tough guy, the guy that's stuck in the underworld and wants to get out, miss so much of the vulnerability uh, that is necessary to make those stories work and forget to make the relationship between the man and the woman palpable and, and just kind of don't really know how to convey the reality of it in a way that doesn't feel like it's admiring the criminal elements. And and it's interesting, I think, to pick this film because uh, On the Waterfront is is so kind of grounded and very Italian neorealist, and this film is very, very stylized. Uh, it's It, in fact, kicks off an entire uh, style, you know, cinematic style. I'm not going to dance around anymore. It's Michael Mann's Thief. Uh, his debut film, uh, played at the Cannes Film Festival, starring uh, James Caan, no less. Uh, it's, uh, for somebody who's not a big Michael Mann fan, I, I find this film so engrossing. I, I rewatched it this year solely because somebody sent me the wrong Netflix disc, and I just put it on again because I loved it. It's uh, this, the, the, just such a brilliant look, a brilliant texture, but what's great is that it's the best, every performance in Thief is the best performance from that actor ever. It's got an incredible supporting cast and, and people that you see pop up in it the same way that with On the Waterfront, you have people that pop up where, you you know, Lee J. Cobb or, or you know, uh, or Carl Malden or whatever. You've got Dennis Farina pops up in Thief. You've got so many uh, little people, you know, characters pop up in Thief. And it captures that same tone of regret where it never, even though he's good at his job and he's precise and it makes it, it's. The precision is admirable, but you never admire the work he's doing. You desperately want him to get out of this. You desperately want James Caan to to get the dream that's on the little vision board he carries around in his pocket. And there's a scene between uh, Caan and his love interest in the diner that is that has the same degree of intimacy as when Brando is sitting in the bar uh, with Eva Marie Saint. So, I, I, Thief is incredible. I'm truly shocked there is not a Michael Mann film in the registry yet. I feel like The Insider or Thief or Heat is, is, is well overdue. And for my money, the best out of that crowd is, is absolutely Thief. So that's my pick for the registry. Michael Mann's Thief. End of tweet. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, Thief fucking rules. Uh, it absolutely should be in the registry. Uh, um, but before, uh, I get into my pick, I just want to, Say what I thought you were leading into. Okay. Just to mention it. Uh huh. I thought you were talking about the Friends of Eddie Coyle. That was another one that was on my list. That's still on my list of things to pick. But I just there's something about Khan's performance in Thief that is so in line with Brando's performance in On the Waterfront yeah. that you kind of feel like. I mean, it obviously comes later. Uh, than the Godfather, but you, when you watch Thief, you understand how somebody looked at James Conn and went, he could be Marlon Brando's son in yeah. Godfather. Like, it's, it's just this perfect passing of the torch that you wish had maybe been passed more thoroughly. Yeah. Well, uh, Thief rules, James Conn rules. It truly was the Conn Film Festival that year. Um, <laughs> so for me, I went in a more, uh, not the, in a direction that's not the one that's typically thought of with on the waterfront. You talk about the crime or the politics of it. Um, I was looking at the idea of him, of Terry being 
a washed up boxer. I mean, the famous scene, I could have been a contender. I could have been a somebody, I could have had a class. And I was just, I kind of just latched onto that of just the, the washed up athlete, the guy who could have been somebody, but didn't for whatever reason. And a film from a filmmaker that I love, we've talked about before and uh, is one of his best movies. It is a return to form. It is about a boxer and ex- uh, well, currently a, boxer but he's kind of a shithead on the end of his career sort of he's fucked everything up he's a drunk he's no he's not good anymore he's just kind of he's just a worker and this young kid comes up and he kind of takes a liking to this kid and helps him out trains with them blah 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 sets him off to pretty decent start to a career and we watch the two of them as this older boxer tries to get his mojo back tries to make things work again and we see this young kid get good and we start to see the parallels of how this is what this older boxer used to be and maybe this younger boxer might find a different path but it's looking pretty clear that uh, the life of the boxer doesn't have much of a diverging uh, road uh, he might be going the same way it is stylistically a lot different than what this filmmaker has ever done before. It's very gritty. It's very down and dirty. Uh, the location filming is just unbelievable. Um, I forget the exact location where they filmed. It might have been like Cincinnati or something. But these rundown like tenement city where it's just like they're like five minutes away from just bulldozing these buildings down. Who cares if anybody's in them? It's just that. Like it looks like some shit from gangs in New York. And it's just so sad and tragic and funny too this filmmaker we've talked about is good at being funny with also getting the emotions i think this main character is very much in line with the terry character marlon brando plays my pick is fat city by john houston um this is the movie that got him back in the swing of things after a rough 60s and anybody who is interested in John Houston in film in general and boxing on film. Uh, anybody who loves Jeff Bridges, this is one of his early roles. He's great in it. Uh, the main character, the Terry character, Terry esque character is played by Stacy Keach, who's also just unbelievable. Uh, I thought John Houston brought the fucking fire with this movie. And I think there is, without having the crime connection there, I think there is a pretty good one to one connection between On the Waterfront and, uh, Fat City, which, uh, you know, John Houston was making movies when On the Waterfront came out and uh, very, very actively was a part of the the scene when the Red Scare was running about, which uh, Ilya Kazan may or may not have had a, uh, you know, a hand in, you know, the court of public opinion is up in the air about that, whether Ilya Kazan was involved or not. But uh, Fat City rules. Uh, everybody should see it. And, uh, like most of Houston's movies, I think it should be preserved in the film registry for him, for the film, the location scouting and, uh, for early the dude. You know, what's wild. I also thought you were going one direction and it went a completely different one. I texted my guest to, to Kyle, like I was doing the Johnny Carson with the envelope on my head. For some reason, when you said, oh, it's a filmmaker that I've talked about before, it's about a boxer. I'm like, oh, I'm guessing he's leading into Undisputed with Ving Rams and, and uh, you know, Walter Hill's Undisputed. But no, it was not. No, that's uh, much as I love Walter. I'm not uh, going to put that one <laughs> up. Uh, I thought we were going that direction. Maybe oh, Undisputed 3. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening, and thanks to Jay Kim for joining us. You can follow him on Instagram at haveagreatjay. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at RagingBull1990. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone who you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.